0: Good evening. Thank you for coming back this evening. Take your Bibles, turn to Daniel chapter number 3. Daniel chapter number 3. One of the most dramatic and exciting stories in the Bible was when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the fiery furnace. While the names and some of the details may escape our memory, the incident is one of the most familiar of the stories in the Bible, ranking right up there with Daniel in the lion's den. This story is not only a story filled with high drama, however, it is awful, also full of lessons for us. For while you may not be facing a literal fire like these young men, sometimes we go through fiery furnace in the area of our experiences and our relationships. I want you to note with me three things about these young men this evening. First of all, they are faithful <clears throat> in their devotion. It says, and ne- now Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits. That's 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. He set it up on the plain of Dura. In the province of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges and magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And so the satraps, the administrators, governors, counselors, treasurers, judges and magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces Gathered together for the dedication of the servant, of the image. Then a herald cried out aloud, To you it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and tongues, that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And whoever does not fall down in worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. Nebuchadnezzar had an enormous golden statue built. There are several possibilities as why the king may have built that golden image. It may have been that he got the idea of an enormous golden statue from his dream that is recorded in chapter 2. In that dream, only the head of the statue was made of gold, but the king has had made his statue covered entirely in gold. Perhaps it's a reaction to the king against being told that his kingdom will not last. There are some possibilities of of a more serious, sinister possibility that the king came to the idea at the instigation of his advisors because of jealousy that they had over the positions that had been awarded to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so they may have encouraged the king to build it and decree that anyone who did not bow down would die. We see that jealousy uh, displayed in Daniel chapter 3, verse 12. Where it reported that there, they reported there are some Jews who have you have set over the affairs of the kingdom, who paid no attention to you, O King. Whatever the cause of the king setting up a huge golden image, ninety feet tall, in the plain of Dura, and this is just a few miles south of the of the city of Babylon. These thousands of officials and administrators from around the empire have been summoned and gathered for this very special occasion. This is not a gathering of the citizens of the kingdom, but rather a gathering of the king's officials. A spokesman for the king gives the instructions in verses 4 through 6. King Nebuchadnezzar has commanded that when you hear the orchestra begin you must fall down on your face before this image and to make sure that this happens the king's instructions are carried out he added and if you do not obey I want you to look and see that smelting furnace over there if you don't bow down You'll be thrown alive into that fire. So as the, as the people look around, they first look at the golden statue, and then they look over at the fiery furnace. And it's not a tough decision, humanly speaking. It's a matter of life and death. However, the word of God, the second commandment, tells people in the Exodus chapter 20, in verse 4 and 5, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. So it was a difficult religious decision for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. As Jews, this act was forbidden. But you can't understand how it would be easy to do some rationalization at this point. Even situational ethics saying to themselves, well, surely God wouldn't want me to die, would he? I can't serve him then. Some would rationalize, well, I'll bow down, but I'm not going to truly be worshiping the statue in my heart. Some may feel, well, I, have, I will bow because God knows my heart and he's going to forgive me. These three Hebrew young men could have justified themselves in many ways to be disobedient to God's word, but they did not do so. So the, the musicians began to play, and everybody fell down to worship this image. That is all except. Three people. I don't know if you can kind of get that wrapped around your head in your imagination. That here are thousands of people, and they all fall down. And you look, and you see there are three men standing by themselves. Only three men in all of that vast crowd who refused to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar. I think he points out to us that uh, sometimes standing up for God, we may have to do it alone. If you skip down back to verse 12, which I commented on a moment ago, some of the king's advisors are are jealous as we looked at, and they couldn't wait to report uh, this indiscretion to the king. They said there are certain Jews. Now, they didn't leave it in that general mode. They said there are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, and their names are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, Have not paid regard to you, they did not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. Now, let me just give a little sidebar here. You may be wondering so, where is Daniel? And the answer is we don't know. We don't know where Daniel is, but obviously he's not here because he wouldn't have bowed down either, as we will see later in the book of Daniel. He must have been away on official business or whatever, but he was not there, is my opinion. Now, let's think about this statue for a moment. There are three things about it that I think we can see. First of all, it was an effort to glorify self. Nebuchadnezzar built this statue to show how important, how great he was. We're going to see in the next chapter that he was a supremely arrogant man. You will remember that Daniel interpreted his dream in chapter 2. He told the king that he was the head of gold, but the rest of the metals symbolized other kingdoms that would take his place. Notice this statue was not just golden head. It was as if Nebuchadnezzar had already forgotten what he had been told about his kingdom and that his kingdom... Would not last. It was, in a sense, a denial of God's revelation of this kingdom not lasting. Now, if we look around in our world today, we can see that totalitarian leaders throughout history have used images of themselves to which homage must be paid. Before his death, Mao's, Mao Zedong's statue dominated China anywhere you looked just as Lenin and then Stalin uh, were pervasive throughout the Soviet Union. And now in North Korea, the image of Kim Jong-un and before him his father and before him his grandfather. They were everywhere, everywhere you looked. This statue was just one though of many great building projects of Nebuchadnezzar. Now it stood 90 feet tall. To give you a little perspective, the Statue of Liberty is 130 feet tall and this statue built centuries before the Statue of Liberty was almost as tall Nebuchadnezzar was saying look what I have done and he already had forgotten that Daniel had told him that that he served as king only because the God of heaven had placed him on the throne it was a He will get a rude reminder of that in chapter number 4. It was also an attempt to deify man. Nebuchadnezzar's statue represented the best of the industrial and scientific knowledge of his day. It was like the mighty pyramids of Egypt. It was an attempt to say, look what a man can do if he has enough money and enough slaves. Even the location of the statue is significant. Genesis chapter 11 records the Tower of Babel, which was man's attempt to build his own way to God. God confused their speech. Nebuchadnezzar's statue was built on the same Babylonian plain as the Tower of Babel. And it can be seen as an attempt to undo God's judgment on the Tower of Babel. The purpose, remember, of building the Tower of Babel was a defiant attempt to build a lasting legacy to their own glory and to prevent the people from being scattered throughout the earth as God had commanded in Genesis chapter 11 verse 4. Nebuchadnezzar's purpose was similar to build a monument to his own glory and to provide a unifying focus to his kingdom. It also was an attempt to falsify worship. True true worship can never be forced. No one who gathered on the plain of Dura voluntarily bowed down. No one fell before the statue as an act of love. Nebuchadnezzar had a beautiful city that he'd built With elaborate hanging gardens It was one of the seven wonders of the world And now an impressive golden statue But the king had to force the people To fall in worship with the threat of death And if they they refused You cannot truly force worship Worship comes from the heart, and you can't force it. But can you imagine for a moment the enormous pressure on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to compromise their beliefs? But they refused to bow down. They were faithful in their devotion. Now, secondly, they were unshakable in their determination. Now, verse 15. Now, remember, this is after... The king has already received word that these three young men have defied his command. So in verse 15, he's talking to them. He says, now if you're ready, at the time you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, and psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I've made. Good. That's their second chance. But, he says, but if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us from your hand O King. I don't guess I'll ever read this passage that I don't think about when we were in Tanzania in January and we went to this little church that looked like a shed didn't have a roof over the entire thing and there were I don't know, 20 maybe, 20 many people there, and they didn't have a pulpit. There was no place to put your Bible, and so it was obvious I was not going to be able to preach from notes. So I preached from Daniel chapter 3 on the if not, because it's such a wonderful passage. And I thought, you know, well, <laughs> there are 20 people here. What kind of reaction can I expect? And at the end of the sermon, about half of the people came forward to talk to the pastor about being saved. I said, well, that's what I know about it. I want you to look here. It says, Nebuchadnezzar said, if you do not obey, notice the phrase he uses in verse 15, who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? And that is a valid question. I want you to see how these three young men answered that question because it is such a powerful answer. These three young men are replying now to the most powerful man in the world at that time. They replied to the king in verse 16, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. It almost sounds like they're saying we're not going to answer you. No, that's not what they're saying. What they're saying is we don't have to stop and consider what we're going to do. We don't have to have time to make up our minds. Our minds are already made up. Nebuchadnezzar had summoned them to give them a second chance. He called them by their Babylonian names, not their Jewish names. And I think perhaps a reminder of where their loyalties should lie. When the king threatened them with fire, I want you to notice the, pref- the profession of faith they made in verse 17 and 18. He said, <clears throat> If that is the case, our God, whom we serve, is able, that's one of the great phrases there, our God is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. That we, do not serve, that we will not serve your gods, nor will we worship the golden image what you have set up. It talks about two kinds of faith. First of all, there is faulty faith. That is um, personified in the phrase, I'll trust God and follow him if he delivers me. This is sometimes called foxhole religion. Saying, God, if you'll get me through this battle, then I'll serve you. If you get me through these circumstances, then I'll believe. But some people really don't have a relationship with God because they're trying to bargain with God. They say, God, if you're real, if you do this or you do that, and I, then I will believe in you. I don't think God ever honors that kind of request because it isn't faith. Any faith that tries to bargain with God is a faulty faith. But that's not the faith that these three young men, they have real faith. And it's exemplified by what I call an if not faith. First of all, they say our God is able. We don't have any qualm or any indecision about the fact that our God is able. But if God doesn't rescue us, we will still be faithful to him. These young men were prepared to die. We have to ask ourselves, you know, would I be willing to say, but if not, God, I'll still do. Job had that kind of faith. Job said in Job chapter 13, verse 15, he says, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. The question in these young men's mind was not whether God was able to deliver, but to them it was whether rescuing them was a part of his plan. But what about those people who do not experience rescue? What about those people that the phrase, but if not, what if God chooses not to rescue you, then what? Well, some in our day would say, well, that's your fault. You just don't have enough faith. Your faith is insufficient. Is that true? No. Hebrews chapter 11 is the great chapter on faith, and it starts with a summary of the magnificent deliverances that God's people experienced through faith. But that's only half of the story. The list of miraculous deliverance was only half of the picture. Because in verse 38 of, of Hebrews chapter 11, it says, But, but others had trials of mockings and scourgings and yes, of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two. They were tempted and they were slain with a the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world is not worthy. They wandered in the deserts and the mountains and the dens and the caves of the earth. The temptation when we are faced with difficult choices in order to follow God is to question why. Why would God, who loves us, make us choose? Why must I choose whether or not I would follow him? This is where it gets hard. Serving God does not come with any guarantees that we will survive every adversity unscathed. And what may be even harder to accept is this. Neither is there any guarantee that we will always survive, period. One never knows whether God's plan is to glorify himself through our death or through our deliverance. I came across a little poem that I thought was really good. It says he makes He maketh no mistake. It says, my father's way may twist and turn. My heart may throb and ache. But in my soul, I'm glad I know. He maketh no mistake. My cherished plans may go astray. My hopes may fade away. But still I'll trust my Lord to lead for he doth know the way. Though night be dark and it may seem... The day may never break. I'll pin my faith, my all in him. He maketh no mistake. There's so much now I cannot see, my eyesight far too dim. But come what may, I'll simply trust and leave it all to him. For by and by the mist will lift and plain it all he'll make. Through all the way, through dark to me, he maketh not one mistake. They were unshakable in their determination. And third and finally, they were vindicated, vindicated by their deliverance. First of all, we see Nebuchadnezzar's anger, fury, whatever you want to put there. Then Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury. And the expression on his face changed. He's one of those arrogant men that really couldn't stand anybody to ever be defiant of him. Could not stand anybody who would uh, not do as he said. And it says his whole expression changed Work Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he spoke and they heated the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. And he commanded certain mighty men of valor who were in his army to to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their coats, their trousers, their turbans, and their other garments and were cast into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, because of the king's command was urgent and the furnace exceedingly hot, The flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down bound into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. The king is so furious that he orders the furnace to be superheated. And the only way to really get a fire hotter is to introduce more oxygen. So they probably had some kind of air air bellows that they were simply pumping in more air into the fire. The sparks are flying, the flames are roaring, and the smoke is billowing out the top. Most archaeologists agree that this was a brick furnace that was shaped somewhat like an old milk bottle. Wider at the bottom with an opening through which metals could be inserted to heat them up. Then there would be an opening somewhere Halfway up, where the fuel could be added to the fire by standing on some kind of a platform. Then there was an opening at the top to allow the smoke to escape. The fire was so hot. As the three young men were placed in the fire, the soldiers who were tasked with putting the, them into the furnace were overcome by the heat and the smoke and they died. There is a great irony at that, if you think about it. These men who obeyed Nebuchadnezzar's command died, while those who were condemned to death for disobeying him emerged alive. The next thing that we see is Nebuchadnezzar's discovery, beginning in verse 24. It says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, And he arose in haste and spoke, saying to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound in the midst of the fire? And they answered and said to the king, True, O king. Look, he answered, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Then Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and he spoke, saying, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego come from the midst of the fire. And the satraps and administrators and governors and the king's counselors gathered together and they saw these men on whose bodies the fire had no power. The hair. Of their head was not singed, nor were their garments affected, and the smell of fire was not upon them. I found just the last part amazing. Have you ever tried to sit by a campfire? Do you come away smelling like smoke or not? You don't have to be in the fire to get the smoke. Nebuchadnezzar is amazed because he sees four men walking around. Their bonds, are, the only thing that was burned were their bond, the thing that tied them up. But they are unharmed. Nebuchadnezzar observes the fourth one looks like the son of God's. In verse 28, he calls the fourth man an angel. So who was the fourth man? And there's a lot of debate about that among the commentators without being dogmatic I believe it was one of the rare visits of Jesus to earth before Bethlehem this is called a Christophany which is an Old Testament appearance of the Son of God coming down from heaven in bodily form prior to his birth in Bethlehem it was he who was with Shadrach Meshach and Abednego In the fire. Dr. Stephen Miller, a professor of Old Testament at Mid American Seminary, wrote this The majority of Jewish scholars have identified this person as an angel. The Talmud asserts that it was the angel Gabriel. However, the expression, a son of the gods, ascribes deity to that being since an offspring of the gods partakes of the, of the divine nature. The king believed he saw no less than a god in the flame with the Hebrews. From a Christian perspective, we know that the pre-incarnate Christ did appear to individuals in the Old Testament and most likely the fourth person in the fire was the Lord Jesus himself in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus, who is sometimes called the angel of the Lord. Some liberal scholars, of course, have tried to strip the Bible of all the miracles and just look, make the Bible look like a book of moral lessons. They claim this story and the other miracles are just story like other stories from literature. But these are these assertions are based on unbelief. When Nebuchadnezzar called these three young men out of the furnace, not only were they not burned, they didn't even smell like smoke. As a result, Nebuchadnezzar started to praise the God of Israel. Notice Nebuchadnezzar's reaction. In verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. And they have frustrated the king's word and yielded their bodies, and they should not serve nor worship any god except their own god. He says, Therefore... I make a decree that any people, nation or tongue, which speaks anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut into pieces and their houses shall be in an ash heap because there, there is no other God who can deliver like this Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. I want to say that at this point, Nebuchadnezzar is not a true believer, as we'll see in the next chapter. Nebuchadnezzar's heart was not changed at any deep level because the God he referred to, notice what he said, not his God, but the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It is not his God. At this point, I want to stop and ask, so what? So, so what does this story mean to me? Four life lessons. First of all, persecution. Facing the fire deepens your commitment. When you dare to stand up for God and you refuse to compromise and accept the beliefs of this world, you will suffer persecution. Paul warns his young son in the faith, Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 12. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I don't know if you've noticed but if you see sold out Christians, you'll see that they really begin to bug an unbelieving world. I mean, if you're a Sunday only Christian, you'll fit in just great. But well, once you decide to live out your faith, you become a religious fanatic. When you're at work in the coffee room and, and somebody tells a dirty joke and you don't laugh, what do they do? They look at you like you're really weird. And if you should ever have the nerve to politely ask someone to please not use your savior's name in profanity, then you're considered a kook. If we can say, well, I'm a Christian, and I've never suffered any kind of persecution, then we probably ought to take a long look at what that says about our level of commitment. Of course, no one should ever intentionally try to stir up trouble. Just live your faith and watch what happens. You will see that the world does not like that. It is times when the circumstances of our lives drive us to our knees that our intimacy with Jesus gets deep. If Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego hadn't been enthroned in the fire, they would have never had the chance to walk with Jesus. Secondly, perseverance. Don't give in to peer pressure. They wouldn't bow, that's devotion. And when they were given a second chance, they wouldn't bend. That's determination. In other words, they had already determined beforehand they were going to be faithful to God. I think their decision would have been much different if they were in the position of being asked to make that decision if they had not already decided in their heart what they were going to do. If you wait until the fire is there to make up your decision... Then you're gonna have a great difficulty. How do you think our three friends our three friends felt when everyone else was bowing down? They felt different. And nobody likes to feel be different. You may have to endure the scorn and the ridicule that has thrown your way, but remember God will honor your endurance. Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 20, but how is it your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. Then third, there's presence. Jesus was with them in the fire. How many people are thrown into the fire? Three. How many men walked around in the fire? Four. So where's the fourth man? He's still there in the fire. And you'll find him when you have to walk through the fire. I don't mean a literal fire. I mean he's there when we are in difficult circumstances. God's promise in Isaiah is significant. Isaiah 43, verse 2. When you walk through the fire you shall not be burned the flames will not set you ablaze for I am the Lord your God the Holy One of Israel your Savior the next verse since you are precious and honored in my sight because I love you notice it doesn't say God will keep you out of the fire now that's usually what I pray Lord get me out of this that what you pray Lord Deliver me from this. It doesn't say if you walk through the fire. It says when you walk through the fire. While God didn't keep them from the fire, He did keep the fire from them. And as I read, read that, it brought to my mind David's great psalm, uh, Shepherd's Psalm, in Psalm 23. The fourth verse of Psalm 23 says, Lo, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I fear no evil because you are with me. It doesn't say if you walk through the valley of the shadow. It says when. Moreover, when you walk through the valley of the shadow. Trials provide the context in which the faith of believers shines with unmatched clarity before the eyes of a watching world. It is precisely in the furnace that the reality of our faith is displayed most clearly. And fourth and final, purification. God uses the fire to purify you. When we find ourselves facing a private, personal or painful furnace, we ask what is God doing? What am I going, why am I going through this? And here's the answer. Prophet Malachi wrote in Malachi 3.3, 3, he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the Levite priest and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. So God is the silversmith and you and I are the silver. The silverman says, the silversmith places the silver in the crucible. That's your personal furnace. The fil- then the silversmith heats the cru- crucible until the silver becomes a liquid. The liquid silver sinks to the bottom and the impurities ride to the top. Then the silversmith takes a skimmer and skims off the impurities. He carefully regulates the heat so that the silver is not destroyed, damaged, just hot enough to keep and to remove the impurities. Any substance that pollutes the purity of the silver, is that not what God does? Is that not what God is doing right now? The silversmith knows how to make the silver pure. It's when, how does he know when he has arrived? When the silver is at the right place. It said that the silversmith knows when the impurities have been removed, when he sees his own reflection. When he sees his reflection in the silver, how does God know when the impurities have been removed from our lives? When He sees His reflection in our lives, I want to close with this statement that I thought was was great. Ian Do Good, in a commentary, wrote this passage. He said, "God has not promised to give us the grace to face all the desperate situations." that we might imagine finding ourselves in. He has promised to sustain us only in the ones that he actually brings us into. He therefore does not promise that we will be able to imagine how we can go through the fire. But he does promise if he leads us through the fire, he will give us sufficient grace at that time. Like manna, grace is not something that can be stored up for later use. Each day receives its own supply. Would you join me in prayer? Thank you, Father, that you love us so much that you desire to remove the impurities from our lives. And you desire for us to become more and more in your image. We don't like fire. We don't like difficult circumstances, but we know that we must face them and that the only purpose that you have in our hearts for this is to break us more and more like you, to deepen our commitment, to cause us to have a more intimate walk with you. Father, I pray that we'll use these, Uh, principles that we've learned tonight and that they might be an encouragement in our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.